I have had that song playing in my head all week. Cannot get the song out of my head, even this morning on the way here, even when we're singing these songs, I'm hearing this other song. So Ecclesiastes 3, contrary to popular belief, was not written by the 60s band, The Birds. It wasn't. They did perform a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And its lyrics are taken verbatim from the King James Version of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. But of course, King Solomon, he wrote these words first. I'm not sure what Peter Seeger was trying to communicate when he plugged these verses into his song, but we can be sure what Solomon was trying to say. And it was this. God is sovereign over everyone and everything. God is sovereign over everyone and everything. And we'll see today that truth is one that makes joy possible in this world. It is an indispensable truth for the Christian to have joy in this world. So I'm praying that I can make Solomon's points clearly today. Because I think it could be easy for us to miss what he's saying. And frankly, I think many have missed what he's saying in this book. And so I'm praying that I can be even extra clear. This morning, as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes, we will begin the second part of the book, which starts with chapter 3, verse 1. But before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father in heaven, we come to you by the Holy Spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus, to ask for help. God, would you help me to preach well? I know that you have something to say, and that is what Solomon, inspired by you, had to say in this chapter, in these verses. And I know that you have something to say in this entire book, and I know that it all fits together into one cohesive argument for joy from you. But I'm intimidated, God, by all these words and the depth of them. And so I ask that you would especially send your Holy Spirit to help me preach this clearly, that I would be totally controlled by this text as I preach. And help all of us, including myself, to hear well, not just with our ears, but with our minds and hearts. And again, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. If you're using one of our church Bibles, which you're free to take with you, if you don't own a Bible, you will find today's text on page 356. So remember, the author of this book is the great King Solomon, also called the Professor. He's writing about 3,000 years ago as an old man. He's looking back over his life and sharing with his readers what he has learned. And at this point, in the first two chapters, he's basically said three things. 
Number one, all of life under the sun is vanity. Those were his opening words, and they will persist as a dominating theme. Chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the professor. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, all of life on this earth is, and he uses this word 34 times, vanity. Which literally means life is vanity. Missed. Life is fleeting. Life is inscrutable. Life is monotonous. It is short. It's tedious. It is puzzling. It goes by quickly. Its circumstances are inexplicable. It's the same thing over and over and over. So that was the first thing that he said. All of life is vanity. Number two. Therefore... Because all of life is vanity, true joy cannot be found here. There's no enjoyment here. No satisfaction here. No fullness. No peace. No contentment. No meaning. No happiness. In fact, it is not even within man's power or ability to draw out true satisfaction anywhere on this earth. Not in pleasure, not in power, not in work, not in wealth. Nowhere. Solomon tried. 1 verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. But he discovered, 1 verse 8, all things are full of weariness. And he discovered in 2 verse 11, I considered all my hands had done and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so he hit this rock bottom in chapter 2, verse 17. I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. So no true satisfaction here. You say... I'm satisfied. Apart from God, no, you're not. I'm happy. Apart from God, no, you're not. I'm content. I have joy. Apart from God, no, you don't. That's what he's saying. Temporal, superficial, detached happiness, maybe, and at best. But no deep Lasting, honest joy. Those are the first two conclusions. All of life is vanity and so true enjoyment cannot be found here. But, here's the third thing he said at the very end of the first section. Number three. But God gives the one who pleases him joy. Here's what he literally said at the end of the first section in 2, 24 through 26. He starts with a, a restatement of the first two conclusions. There is nothing good in a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. And now here's his third 
surprisingly optimistic statement. For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. Joy. Now that should stand out. That is the first mention of joy or happiness or satisfaction in the book. Life is vanity. No enjoyment here. And yet, joy may be found. That's what he says. Joy may be found to the one who pleases God. God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. The believer who is living under the sun, but knows the God above the sun, will be given joy. That's what he says. The believer living like everyone else under the sun, but who knows the God above the sun, will be given joy. That's good news. That's good news. Walter Kaiser in his commentary said, men and women definitely do not have it within themselves or in their own innate abilities to extract enjoyment from life or from any of life's most mundane functions such as eating, drinking, or enjoying the purchasing power of a paycheck. Only God can give that ability to those who come to Him in belief even for such basic functions of life not to mention even higher values. So, after two depressing chapters, Solomon puts an anchor point here for hope. That's what he's done. At the end of chapter 2, he puts an anchor point for hope. He's held our head underwater for two chapters. And now, he finally pulls us out for air. Now listen, what Solomon is saying is true. He's not being sarcastic about life. He's not exaggerating. What Solomon says is true. All of life under the sun is vanity and there is nothing you can do about that. All of life is vanity and there is nothing you can do about that. No lie, no cause, no mission, no relationship, no accomplishment, and no religion can somehow infuse meaning and satisfaction into this life. But, yet, by God's grace, you can enjoy this vain life. That's what he's saying. You can find significance and meaning and satisfaction, which is really what this book is about. Now, ten more chapters. Ten more chapters. I mean, the professor is just getting warmed up. Ten more chapters because you and I still have a lot of questions. I assume you have some questions. I have questions. Questions like this. This one's at the top of the list. If life is vain and fleeting and inscrutable 
and tedious, how can we possibly enjoy it? I mean, how's that work? If life really is vanity, then how can we possibly enjoy it? And that is the question that Solomon will answer next. So this brings us to the second section of the book. The second part spans chapters 3 through 5. So section 1 is chapters 1 and 2. And I'm proposing... And others have that the second part spans chapters 3 through 5. And in order to understand where the professor is taking us, let's begin by jumping ahead and reading the conclusion of this section, which we find at the end of chapter 5 and verses 18 through 20. If you want to turn there, go ahead. This is the conclusion of the section that we are going to begin today so that we know where he's taking us. Chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot And rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life. Because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Did you hear all those happy words? This sounds like a different author. I mean, we want to go toward this conclusion. Don't you want to be kept occupied with joy in your heart. Good, he said, enjoyment, enjoy, rejoice, gift, joy. That is where the professor is headed in the next three chapters. Here it is. Let me restate that conclusion. For the believer, so if you're here and you're a believer, you've turned from and you've forsaken your sin, And you have placed your trust for your salvation in Christ alone. For the believer, it is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of life. Because your life, every meaningful and mundane moment, is a gift from God. That's the conclusion of this section we're starting today. Let me say that one more time. For the believer, it is good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all of life because your life, every meaningful and mundane moment is a gift from God. Your life is an utterly unique lot that God has given you, that you must accept and rejoice in. Your life is not like my life. My life is not like your life. Your life is not like another life. Your moments are different from anyone else's moments. Your life 
Your life is an utterly unique lot, is the term Solomon uses, that God has given you. And God means for you, believer, to, his words here, accept that and rejoice in that. So that's the conclusion. Now, let's back up and begin reading his three-chapter foundation beneath that conclusion. And Lord willing, we'll get through the first 15 verses of chapter 3 today. So chapter 3, let's begin in verse 1. This is the beginning of his three-chapter argument that reaches that conclusion that we just read at the end of chapter 5. Let's start in verse 1. For everything... There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Two points today. And the first one is found here. The first point is in these first eight verses. And let me tell you what it is before we read the rest of the verses. Everything is part of God's plan. That's point number one. Everything is part of God's plan for everything. There is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, under heaven. That's a new phrase replacing the usual under the sun. Solomon is taking us higher than the sun. He's taking us above the sun to a higher perspective, God's perspective. And from that vantage point, there is an appointed time and season for everything. And who's appointing the time and season for everything? God. So in other words, everything is part of God's plan. He'll make this clear in the next verses. Seven verses here where he's going to list 14 pairs of opposites. And he's going to use the word time 28 times to make his point crystal clear. That God has a plan and his plan encompasses every person. Every action in all times And all places. These verses illustrate the comprehensiveness of the plan of God. These are not instructions. Like this is when you plant your plant and this is and this is when you die and this is when you build and this is when you embrace. Some people read it that way. These are not instructions. The point of these verses is God orders all of life. God has determined the point in time for everything and the length of time, the season for everything. So now we're ready to read them. Verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. For some of you, the song was not in your head yet, and now there it is. 
and you're, it's going to get annoying. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. That's pretty much everything. And all of it is set by God. All of it is set by God. He began with a time to be born and a time to die. In other words, your days are determined by God. Have you thought about that recently? Your days are determined by God. This is what Job said in chapter 14, verse 5. Since his, man's, days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. We say interesting things sometimes when someone dies like it was an untimely death. But not from God's perspective. It was a premature death. But not from God's perspective. He knows the first date on your tombstone. And right now he knows the last date on your tombstone. Think about that. I mean, your life is millions of moments. Between the date on your birth certificate and the date on your death certificate. And every moment is set by God. Determined by God. Every moment of your life is planned by God. Derek Kidner in his commentary on Ecclesiastes said, Whatever may be our skill and initiative, our real masters seem to be these inex in inexorable. I think that's how you pronounce that word. These inexorable seasons, not only those of the calendar, but that of the tide of events, which moves us now to one kind of action, which seems fitting now to another, which puts it all into reverse. Obviously, we have little to say in the situations which moves us to weep or laugh, mourn or dance. But our more deliberate acts, too, may be time conditioned more than we suppose. Everything is part of God's plan. This is the doctrine of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. The exhaustive sovereignty of God. And that is the doctrine that Solomon deals with in this section. These three chapters are about God's sovereignty and how exhaustive it is. He's not giving it up anywhere. He's not giving control up anywhere. He's not handing anything over. God orders all of life such that everything is a part of God's plan. That's why David could say things like, 
He did in Psalm 31.15. My times are in your hand. Listen to this description of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. It's in Isaiah 46, 10 through 11. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. The exhaustive sovereignty of God. Here's what we have a tendency to do. We have a tendency to think of God's control and to think of God's sovereignty one dimensionally. So we like to think of God being in charge of the good things, but not the bad things. We like to give credit to God when things go the way we want them to go, but we shy away from giving credit to God when things don't go the way we want them to. When good things happen, that's God. When bad things happen, that's not God. That's what I was raised to believe. And that's because in various places, God hands over his control and hands over his sovereignty. Maybe an argument would be to preserve things like the free will of man. And so you have God in control of some things, but not in control of other things. But listen, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, what Solomon is making clear in these verses and will in the chapters to come, is that it is not either or, it is both and. Everything is a part of God's plan. What is the answer to our second catechism question? The question is, what is God? And here is the answer. God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is eternal, infinite, and unchangeable in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice, and truth. And what's the last sentence? It's our point here. Nothing happens except by him and through his will nothing nothing happens except through God it goes through God and by his will it's according to his plan so I need to run through a bunch of verses on this we'll do it quickly but let me read you a a bunch of verses answering this question is that true Is everything a part of God's plan? Does the Bible really say that? So let me read you maybe a dozen verses. Because what about what about good and evil events? Good events. okay, but evil events. Is God's hand somehow behind that? Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Okay, Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? 
I can still remember the feelings I felt when I discovered these verses. I didn't like the way they made me feel. Lots of questions popped into my head. Lots of misunderstandings popped in my head. I resisted it. I'm okay with God being on the hook for the good things in life, but when things don't go well, what about my suffering? What about sin? What about evil? Are we saying that God is behind that in some way? Are we saying that even that is a part of God's plan? I didn't like the way that made me felt. It took time to understand. There are questions that come up that need to be answered. But here's the thing you'll see. At the end here, Solomon's conclusion, it is this very truth that is the bedrock for joy. So if you don't push through, this would be my encouragement to you, if you don't push through your resistance here, you're going to miss out on all the joy. So just assume that maybe as a finite human being, there's some things you might not understand about how this works yet. And if it's God's word is clear here, I want to encourage you to accept it. So let's keep reading other verses. I mean, God's hand behind evil events, even sinful events. What about the most sinful act ever? What about the most evil thing that ever happened? I'd say that was the murder of God. When Jesus was crucified by a man, he was murdered. God was murdered on the cross. And listen to these verses, Acts 2.23. And this Jesus, Peter said in his sermon, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He says, you're responsible. You crucified him. You hated him. You were wicked. But get this straight. God delivered him up according to his definite plan. So here you have the most evil thing that ever happened according to God's plan. Acts 4, 27 and 29, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, they were there to crucify Jesus, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything is a part of God's plan. What about the free acts of man? I mean, I make free choices every day. You make free choices every day. And no no one's making me make these choices. I choose what school to attend and where to get a job. But there was an active hand behind all those things. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. 
I mean, if anybody's independent, if anyone's got autonomy, if anyone's got authority, it should be a king. If anybody can do what he wants to do apart from God, it should be a king. And God says, the king's heart is just like a river in my hand. And I take it wherever I want to take it. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his steps. Everything is a part of God's plan. What about chance or luck occurrences, like where lightning strikes? Are we saying that everything's a part of God's plan? Yes. Job 36, 32. He covers his hands with the lightning and commands it to strike the mark. Every lightning bolt. From God, bullseye, 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 nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. Exactly where he wants the lightning to strike. Okay, I'm playing a game with my family. I'm playing a game. There are dice in the game. And we're rolling the dice. Is everything a part of God's plan? I just had a six come up. Are you telling me that the six came up because it is a part of God's plan? Yes. Everything, every moment. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Everything is part of God's plan. Matthew 10.29-30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I mean, think about this. Everything. Ladies, God planned how many hairs would come out of your head and into your brush this morning. He knows how many hairs were on your head before you brushed it and after you brushed it. There's so many more verses we could read. Everything is a part of God's plan. There is not a more clear doctrine in the Bible. I get why we want to resist it, but there's nothing more clear. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and presidents and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So that's the point of the first eight verses. Everything is part of God's plan. And now we'll find his second point in 9 through 15. So let's read these verses now. And I'm going to pause throughout to try and help us track the argument that Solomon is making. But point number one, everything is part of God's plan. Verse nine. What gain has the worker from his toil? He's asked that question before, but he's going to answer it differently here. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful In its time. So pause with me. That's the second point. Remember the first point. Everything is part of God's plan. And now here he says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. So here it is. Here are the two points. God's plan encompasses everything. Everything is part of God's plan. 
and God's plan is good. God's plan is beautiful. That's the point. Also, still in verse 11, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay, what does this mean? God has put eternity in our hearts. We know, people know, animals don't know this. We know that there is more than this temporal life. We know that there is something beyond. Men and women know this. God has only put eternity into man's heart. We know there's a God. We know there's a plan. And what do we want to know? We want to, we want to know that plan. We want to know what the plan is. We want, to, we want to know how this thing that I'm going through right now fits into eternity. How does it all fit together? We long to know that. We, we long to know how all these details, okay, planned by God. We long to know how all these details fit together. Yet, we're told, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to end. God's plan is mysterious. God's plan is not obvious. God's plan is infinitely complex. We scan his works in vain. But what is the point Solomon is making? It's a beautiful plan. It's a beautiful plan. I don't think there is a more important text for Christians who are suffering than right here. I don't think there is something more important for you to remember when you are sick or destitute or lonely or depressed than everything that happens is a part of God's plan and His plan is beautiful. Everything that's happening to me right now is according to God's plan and His plan is good. Let's finish the text. Because if, if our job is not to find out what the plan is, that's what Solomon's saying. If our job is not to figure things out, then, then what is our job here? Verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So our job, track with him, our job is to be joyful and to do good. That's our job. To enjoy this life that God has given us and to do good to others, he says. And now finally, a restatement of the exhaustive sovereignty of God. Verse 14. I perceived that 
Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before Him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. So in conclusion, let's try and put all of this together. If you haven't been tracking or following to this point, I hope it will be made clear now. Let's look back over what Solomon has said and where he's taking us and how these things that we have learned today fit into all of this. All of life is vanity. That's where the professor started. That's what he discovered after his experiment of life. All of life is vanity. Then he said, so joy cannot be found here. That's what he told us. I've tried. It's not here. All of life is vanity. And so true joy, true satisfaction cannot be found here. That's what he said in the first two chapters. Now, fast forward to the conclusion of the section that we're in right now. And what did he say? Enjoy your life. So are you, are you putting that together? All of your life is vanity. So joy cannot be found on this planet. Enjoy your life. And now we're in this gap right here. Chapters 3 through 5, trying to understand, well, how? How? Some of you have come up to me, and when I said Solomon for these first two chapters is holding your head under water, and you've said, I know, that's what it feels like. It's depressing. I hardly want to come back and hear another sermon. I mean, it's bad. All of life is vanity and Solomon hated his life and it's depressing and you're right. It is the same thing over and over again. It doesn't seem like I'm getting anywhere and I'm still struggling with the same things and terrible things keep happening to me and it's just repetition and over and over. It's tedious. It's boring. Am I making a difference? Yeah, this is not good. All of life is vanity. True joy cannot be found here. But by the end of chapter 5, He's saying, enjoy your life. Okay, so how do I enjoy my life? So he said at the end of chapter two, he said, God gives the one who pleases him joy. God gives the believer joy. And now I want to ask again, how? How? So between this vain life and enjoying this life is the answer God gives believers joy. So is this just like a a switch? Is this just a a magical thing that there wasn't joy there and then God puts joy there? Or is there a way that God gets that joy in his children? 
Is there a means that God uses to get a believer who knows the God above the sun to somehow enjoy this vain life under the sun? And the answer to that question is, yes, that's our text today. So how does God get this ability to enjoy this vain life How does he get that ability in a Christian? And the answer is this truth. That everything that happens to you is a part of God's plan. And God's plan is good. That's how a Christian gains joy. It is remembering the sovereignty of of God. What was the basis for Solomon's finally found enjoyment of life? And the answer is the sovereignty of God. That's what he's telling you in chapter 3. That's the foundation. That is the ground beneath Solomon's argument. That is the foundation of wise joy, Christian. Because what happens in your life, first of all, are a lot of things that you didn't plan for. Right? Every day. I'll tell you right now, your day is not going to go as planned. It is not going to go as planned. You make your plan and the Lord directs your steps. You have a plan and lots of things are going to go differently today. Things happen that you do not plan for. And many times those things that happen, you have no control over. Most of the time, those things that happen, you have zero control over. And many times those things that come into your life that you did not plan for are painful. They're painful. They feel like they're going to kill you. They devastate you. They wipe you out. What are they doing? They are always threatening your what, Christian? Your joy. So what happens? Again, does God just magically give you joy? I don't think that's the argument. I don't think that's how it works. You read your Bible. You listen to a sermon. You stumble on Ecclesiastes chapter 3 or a million other texts and you're reminded, you're reminded that everything is a part of God's plan. And you remember that even this thing that is not good is a part of a plan that is good. And it will be seen as beautiful in time. One author says, A common illustration of the ways of God and the understanding of man is that of a tapestry on a loom. From the vantage underneath, little is visible but snarls and knots. But above, the beautiful pattern of the work on the loom can be seen. As Solomon has shown, we live out our lives under the loom and everything we see is vanity. So how can we see the pattern above? The only possible answer is through faith in the sovereign God. So that's you and that's me. 
where we're under the loom. And it doesn't look beautiful. I mean, there are beautiful things. But many times, it doesn't, it's not pretty. It snarls. It's, it's not. How could this possibly be anything good? And you change your perspective. And you see that every one of those snarls, every one of those knots, was absolutely essential in forming this beautiful tapestry seen from above. Christian, I am telling you with 100% certainty, there will come a day and you will see that tapestry. And it's going to blow you away. You're like, there's, there's no way. How could something that beautiful, how could, how could possibly? And underneath will be all those snarls and, and all those knots. You're going to see that divorce underneath and you're going to see that cancer. And you're going to see that job that you lost and you're going to see the prolonged singleness and you're going to, you're going to see your loneliness and you're going to see your depression and you're going to see your battle with a sin over and over again. And you're going to see these relational conflicts. And you're going to see this pain and the sorrow and the suffering. And you're going to see and know for certain that God makes everything beautiful in its time. I was so blessed this week to have lunch with a young man in our church. We went down here to. Monk cellar, I think it was on Friday afternoon, and we're eating burgers and eating fries together. And he begins to, not knowing, of course, preach my sermon to me. And I was just in awe. Because his wife has just been diagnosed with cancer. And it's devastating and unexpected. And of course, they're afraid and scared. And nothing is for certain anymore. And yet he's looking at me and saying, but we know that everything is a part of God's plan including this cancer. And I had her tell me a week ago, I'm, I'm telling you, only Christians that believe Ecclesiastes 3 can say things like this. Heard her say in so many words that she's thankful for the cancer. Because she knows that God loves her. She knows that God is good. And she knows that everything that happens, including this, is part of His good, beautiful plan. So Christian, in conclusion, every moment, every moment planned by God Today, some of us will go to a park. You can have a picnic. Maybe you're coming, maybe you're not. You're going to go about the rest of your day. Keep this in mind. 
every moment is planned by God. It's not an interruption. It's not a distraction. It's not merely mundane means to a greater end. But every single moment has been planned by God. And they are moments to be embraced and enjoyed by the Christian. Because every single one of those moments. Every single one of them. You might get rear-ended. Your kid might throw a fit. The fried chicken might not taste as good as you were thinking it was going to taste. You may get into a fight with somebody from church in front of a bunch of people. Your kid might throw a football and it's going to hit someone else in the back of the head. I don't know what's going to happen today, but know this, that every moment is a part of God's good plan. And so find a way... To enjoy not just those moments you think are meaningful, but even the mundane moments. Because they are all a part of God's good plan. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truth. Thank you, God, for not just telling us to be joyful, but for giving us the way to be joyful. We're thankful that the joy you give us does not just come to us by subjective or mystical means, but through objective truth. The joy is something we can we can find and we can pursue and we can have because you've laid it out for us. So God, for everyone in this room, whether it is a couple that is dealing with cancer or it is someone who feels like they are on top of the world and everything is going exactly the way they had hoped. God, give us all the ability as we put our faith in your sovereignty to honor you by enjoying the lot that you have given us whether we like our lot or not. Help us, God, to accept it and not only to accept it and grit our teeth, but to enjoy it and praise you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.